Hey, it's Nick. Thank you for listening to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. We are bringing you insights from experts from around the world so you can improve your personal and professional performance. Our guest today is Stephen Fawkes. If you like learning about smart hacks, then you're going to love this episode because Stephen is one of the original biohackers. He is so generous with his time, we've been able to record two episodes. This is the second episode that we've recorded with Stephen Fawkes called Incredible Hacks, the grandfather of biohacking. In this second episode, we discuss meditation and breathwork, what chronic low-level inflammation is and why you need to be aware of it, Stephen's view on the vegan and carnivore diets, Stephen's three favorite hacks, which include tryptophan, urine testing, and resetting your circadian rhythm. And also, Stephen's research into Alzheimer's and how to avoid Alzheimer's when you get older. If you are enjoying the videos and podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to our podcast and like and subscribe to the YouTube videos. If you would like to get access to our content one week before it's officially released, then please leave your details at www upgradedexecutive.com forward slash subscribe and we will send you a special link each week so you can watch the episode one week before it's officially released. Let's jump right into the episode with Stephen Fawkes. Welcome to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. What do you think is happening when one's having a 5D experience, say be it through deep meditation and breath work? I think that Meditation is incredibly valuable. And what's fascinating to me is that there's so many different ways it can be done and so many different experiences that people have. And a personal meditation technique is very much like all these other kinds of things. And there are some people who can't do certain kinds of meditation easily. And it's like, you know, trying to do a massage with sandpaper to them. It drives them nuts. (laughs) <laughs> and um, yet certain other kinds of techniques, easy and simple. And, you know, I do, you know, different meditation techniques as part of my personal optimization. And I just shared one of them on Facebook about two weeks ago. But a lot of meditation teachings are time consuming and complicated. Mm-hmm. And most people are impatient, don't want to be bothered. So the one that I use takes between one and five minutes. Basically to inhale into your energy and power and action, and then hold your breath, either hold it by chest muscles, inflate your lungs, and hold it with your chest muscles, which creates tension. And then you relax, you exhale, and you do an extended exhale that's as long as you can possibly do it. And you just let all that tension fade away. And so the muscle tension goes um, You're There's no urge to breathe because of the breath holding. You get lots of CO2 into your system. And at some point, that relaxation of the, the breath going out becomes a relaxed breath coming in. And just a simple breath like that allows you to do it. You can do it anywhere you want. If you're about to go on television and you know be in front of cameras, you can do this before you do that. If you're about to go on a date and you're nervous about it, you can do it then. This is something that you take with you. It's just breath control, a discipline of breath control. And it's suitable in a lot of situations where you might even be socially involved because it's subtle enough that you can do it at a party or at a wedding and nobody knows you're doing it. It's a very, very powerful technique. What would you say, Stephen, are the best ways to try and 
controlled inflammation. It's a messy subject. And <laughs> that's the reason that doctors don't deal with it. It's awfully in, uh, complicated. <laughs> so it depends a lot on what's going infections. on. Okay. Mm -hmm. Blatant source of inflammation, infections. But, uh, and that's what your body is designed to deal with. But if you have inflammation from, let's say, leaky gut syndrome, you don't have an infection. Adaptions that the body has to inflammation are geared towards infection when you don't have an infection. And so you can get stuck in an mm -hmm. infl chronic inflammatory mode from things like food allergies, delayed hypersensitivities to things like gluten and wheat and, and proteins in milk and phytotoxins and mycotoxins and endotoxins in our environment. IgE, IgA, and IgM antibodies have a, instead of being, you know, five to 30 minutes, they're days to a week. And that's why people don't notice them. That inflammatory response being spread out over a whole week, and it just feels like, well, that's the way things are all the time. And unless you do a food withdrawal and reintroduction process where you're trying to amplify that inflammatory response to where you can notice it kind of like you know smoking your first cigarette you know if your parents encouraged you to smoke a cigarette a full cigarette the first time you smoked you never smoked for the rest of your life so an adverse experience goes a long way and the problem with delayed hypersensitivities is it spreads this experience out over such a long period of time that you just don't notice it it's just constant mm -hmm. and so we don't our minds don't learn from that and by a bee or you get stung by or bitten by a mosquito and you get a welt and it itches you know that cause and effect relationship is separated by minutes and our minds can handle that that's a cause and effect relationship it's a great way of explaining it because mm -hmm. i realized i was sensitive to lectins in the nitrate family of vegetables if i have a small amount of nitrate vegetables i can be two kilos heavier than the next day where I'm just sort of retaining water and inflammation. It probably takes me about four or five days to then lose the inflammation. Part of our former attachment to nature was seasonal eating. Because of that, we had food withdrawal that was enforced. You know, if you were nightshade sensitive, you wouldn't have any nightshades from January through April. If you wouldn't have wheat, between, you know, let's say October and March. So, you know, any food that you would eat would tend to be seasonal. And therefore, when it's out of season, you wouldn't be exposed to it. And you could wash those antibodies and antigens out of your system. We don't do that anymore. If you're eating wheat, chances are you're eating it every week. So if you have a delayed hypersensitivity, which is, you know, six to eight days, and you eat it every week, just when it's starting to wane, boom, you hit it again. And so it's constant. One of the things that I've learned that I can't emphasize enough is that, that healing and inflammation are antagonistic to each other. Anytime you have inflammation, you're deferring your healing if you have an infection. And it's going to last two days or maybe two weeks. Because that deferring you can catch up. Mm -hmm. But if it's 24 seven, you know, 365 days a year, natural healing mechanisms of our body are just being short circuited. What's your view, Stephen, on the current vegan movement and how that may 
tie in the people's ability to be able to get everything they need from their diet. The problem is, is that you don't get everything you need. If you go into Whole Foods or some market that's dealing with nutrition and you look at food ratings and nutrition mm -hmm. rating, they're all geared towards the nutrition value of vegetables. The lenses that we look through to look at things like health and wellness are slanted by this vegetarian view in ways that potentially damaging to those of us who do need a higher amount of animal products in order to maintain optimum because of our digestive system that we're vegan animals is just, I think, wrong. I think you can get by on a vegan diet if it's crude, like you would find a vegan diet in, say, India. They harvest grain, there's insects in the grain that they harvest that they don't bother to clean out. But in the United States, we clean our grain obsessively and compulsively so that there are no insect parts to it. And so it's rare to find somebody who can withstand a vegan diet. Far more of people who try it end up after two months or two years backing away from it. Mm. So I think that most people who are inclined towards a vegan diet do really well with, you know, 5% animal or 1% animal products in their diet, but that going 100% in some way intrinsically dangerous. Bonus. I just say, if you want to be a vegan because of ideological reasons, go ahead and do it. But keep that in your mind that your health may deteriorate. The reason that people have swung in that direction has to do with a delusional thing that man, the great hunter, men uh, became men and walked on two feet in order to better hunt. And that, you know, men kill animals and therefore, you know, animal foods essential to our diet because of that hunting mentality. I think that that's 99% delusion. That's not how, why we are what we are. And that Elaine Morgan was right, and she wrote the book Descent of Woman and um, the Aquatic Ape, uh, which talked about, you know, what those humans like being hairless and, and having subcutaneous fat and having a diving reflex and stuff that suggests that we are aquatic mammals, that we've made a significant adaptation to an aquatic lifestyle that the current archeology span that is validated based on a variety of scientific advances is that one of the reasons for that was shellfish, that, um, that we developed this aquatic style and that shellfish were one of our food staples during this period of time, maybe a thousand years ago to maybe half a million years ago at the outside to um, you know maybe, a hundred thousand years ago that we lived on the shores of lakes and inland seas and that you know that's one of our protein sources was shellfish. We what are... about the other end of the spectrum because I'm in various different biohacking forums and circles and I'm seeing the carnival diet pop up time and time, mm. and time again. We interviewed a few guests that have been in <laughs> the carnival diet. Just wondering what your view was on that. So that's like no vegetables, it's just, it's just meat. That this is a common thing and that if black is wrong, white is right. And if white is wrong, black is right. This kind mm. of absolutism. And I think that that's always been a bad strategy in terms of thinking and, and acting on this like that. There are values to vegetables and certainly in terms of liver induction, which let's talk about looking at 
like the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, Brussels sprouts. These are dramatically increased activity of certain enzymes in the liver that lower overall cancer incidence. So those would properly be considered phytotoxins. And the question is, well, why would you want a toxic diet? There's an adaptive process to dealing with phytotoxins that strengthens you like a kind of exercise, but it's a metabolic exercise. It's a detoxification exercise. And that the vegan diet is one of the most toxic because mm -hmm. you've got phytotoxins of every kind and mycotoxins of every kind that are embedded in the diet. There are the phytotoxins and mycotoxins and endotoxins that we are adapted to metabolizing and handling. Sure, your liver gets bigger when you eat broccoli and cauliflower, just like it does if you take dilantin, your liver gets bigger. But it's not pathological, it's adaptive. It is on some level making you stronger. You know, then there's also the issue of fiber. You know, fiber helps people, it helps their colonocytes. As fiber gets digested, in, it isn't digested in enzymes and stuff, it's digested in the gut by microbes, by, in the colon by microbes. And during that digestion process, Butyrates are, you know, butyric acid and related hydroxybutyrate, ketobutyrate are released, and those um, is absorbed into the colonocytes that line the colon. And it turns out it's a significant source of energy, and that when you don't have fiber in the diet, or you're missing the, the microbes that break the fiber down, that you are at risk of colon cancer. You know, if you can eat a carnivore diet, and maintain enough energy metabolism to feed your colonocytes from the outside, from your body into the colonocytes, then you don't need the digestion of fiber to feed your colonocytes. And maybe you can do that and be healthy. But I suspect that humans are omnivores and that either avoiding meat entirely or avoiding vegetables entirely mm -hmm is will be found to be counterproductive there was feasting and there was famine and when you walked into a valley and then consumed all the food in the valley um, you had to either move on or starve and those kinds of things are big motivations so the fact that dietarily our you know affluent cultures we have food all the time is unnatural and the tendency is to eat, what do they say, three square meals a day, you know, and then some people every three hours. And so those metabolic systems that are designed in our bodies to help us deal with famine and help us stabilize our energy, um, they're unexercised. Mm -hmm. And you could consider feasting and famine to be aspects of, of metabolic exercise or dietary exercise that go in parallel with, you know, physical muscle exercise and, and movement and stretching as being examples of physicality. And high concept for that nowadays is um, intermittent, intermittent fasting, intermittent exercise, intermittent um, supplementation, um, intermittent um, whatever, where you're deliberately pushing metabolic systems so that they become more robust. Many people who haven't been in ketosis for 10 or 20 or 40 years, when they first go into ketosis, it's incredibly stressful. But if you go back in and come out and go back in and within a few months, your insulin resistance goes down and you can skip meals without noticing it. And 
your ability to enter and exit fat burning mode becomes transparent. It's mm. not something that causes a crisis. And that's because mm. our ancestors used to do it and we don't do it anymore. Stephen, you've been biohacking now for 40 years. What are your sort of like three favorite hacks? I think like any inventor, a lot of my favorite hacks are ones that I actually developed myself. <laughs> One of them is tryptophan. And there's a problem with tryptophan in that it's not a good idea to have high tryptophan in one's diet. But that tryptophan is very important for making part of the sleep process. It's part of the search for enlightenment and spirituality, appreciation of that connection to something larger than yourself. Whether you think about that as God or family or mankind or the future, I like tryptophan. But tryptophan is also a problem when you have inflammation. When you have inflammation, there are two enzymes that get activated, aromatase that makes estrogen and IDO that, makes, that burns up your tryptophan. And this is part of your defense against bacteria. Iron, copper, zinc, and tryptophan are all growth factors for infections. And so your body tends to lower them when you have inflammation. And lowering tryptophan means lowering serotonin. By mixing tryptophan with predigested collagen peptides, one dissolves into a solution so it's absorbed very, very rapidly. Instead of it being a powder that dissolves over hours, it's now in a liquid form that dissolves in minutes. It's absorbed in minutes through the blood-brain barrier into your brain. And so you get this amplification of serotonin effect that's probably eight to 10 times, which is, in my opinion, um, good for allowing you to use the smallest possible dose of tryptophan to get a benefit. And it's also involved in sugar addiction and in alcohol addiction. So it's nice to know about this if you're an alcoholic or you're a sugarholic, that you can use this tryptophan solution to mitigate your carb cravings. I don't have the willpower to handle my sugar cravings 24-7, you know, but I do have the willpower to handle it for 20 minutes. And so you just make a deal with yourself. If I you know, take some of this tryptophan mixture, take a swallow, and then 20 minutes later, oh, it's gone. Mm. <laughs> so I think that's a really cool hack. Another hack that I've invested quite a bit in, which is a pain to do. That's where you monitor your urine pH every time you pee, which mm. is why it's a pain. It's a lot of trouble to do it, but I've learned incredible amounts about myself by studying that pattern which goes not only to circadian rhythms you know of from acid during the day to alkaline at night being active and energetic during the day to being calm and relaxed and deeply sleeping at night that's a twofold ph variation in 24 hours which is a factor of a hundred in terms of hydrogen ion concentration not a trivial rhythm it turns out that a lot of pathologies show up as disturbances in this pattern. There are things like fixed acid patterns where your urine is acid all the time that is a sign of chronic inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't know you have inflammation, but you have chronically acid urine, you can just immediately assume you have inflammation. You have to pee on a strip of paper or in a pH meter and then record mm -hmm. the number and the time and, mm -hmm. and then you know look at things like, well, what was I doing at the time? My urine went alkaline to very, very acid in 15 minutes, and I had a migraine headache. Well, mm. that's a classic pattern for migraine headaches and asthma attacks. This kind of 
inflammatory trigger from the body becoming, the bloodstream becoming too alkaline for the kidneys to manage it. And therefore, inflammatory chemicals are produced of the blood. And that results in vasodilation issues and, and migraines and airway restrictions and stuff like that that can become life, potentially life-threatening. This is quite useful, but because it's not easy, nobody does it. If you have a delayed circadian rhythm and you're a night owl type, your acidification in the morning is sluggardly. It's delayed. And if you eat fruit for breakfast and you're a night owl, it'll derail you for the entire day. But if you're a morning lark and you, you have good acidification, good energy pickup, eating vegetables and fruit for breakfast can balance you out. So you have people like the Diamonds writing about fruit for breakfast as being good for everybody, and it was good for them. But for me, it would be a disaster. The other aspect of something that I figured out, which is something that's maybe unique to me, I found that if I take a big dose of paracetam in the morning, my entire day's dose and one dose in the morning, that that restores my circadian rhythm. Completely undocumented in the literature. But it's worked for me. It's worked for several other people. If I take a big dose of Prasatam in the morning, the next morning I wake up at dawn without an alarm clock. I've been doing that for more than 10 years, and it's still giving me that benefit. How about ones that you might have heard me talk about that you'd like me to expand on? Can you suggest one that you'd like me to elaborate on? I think, wasn't there one around chickenpox? All of the lipid envelope viruses, they're, they're stealth viruses, herpes. DMV, Epstein-Barr virus, Ebola, Zika, Hepatitis C. These are all lipid envelope. They plague humans. Uh, influenza, big issue. Hiding a virus inside of a fat globule is a very, very effective strategy for viruses. And it turns out that there's a antiviral therapy called BHT, butylated hydroxytoluene, and this substance, which you should think about as a drug, has mm -hmm. powerful antiviral effects. It's just truly awesome how broadly effective it is. First book that I wrote was on the use of BHT for treating herpes, and that's because for three years I was in a dietary supplement company that was selling BHT, and mm -hmm. therefore I couldn't talk about it. In doing this research and expanding upon it. I have a whole book out. It's now free on the Project Wellbeing website on the Steve page. This antiviral property. Vitamin A does, vitamin D does. Mm. We're talking about in terms of selenium and oxygen and magnesium and calcium having antiviral properties. Whereas sodium and potassium and opposite vitamin A as an antiviral, the vitamin E is being proviral. You can kind of split the chemicals of the world and the nutrients of the world into ones that have a proviral state and one that have an antiviral state. And when you look in the literature and you study it, you find all these examples of everything on the antiviral side that have been researched and all. And turns out there's a pattern to this association. The work of Emmanuel Ravisi, who categorized a metabolic continuum from anabolic, alkaline, anaerobic, to catabolic, acidic, and aerobic, um, anabolic side of things are proviral, and that viruses specialize in this side of the continuum. Well, that's what happens. That's where you go when your energy goes low. 
Mm-hmm. So if your energy is balanced, you're here. And if you end up with a catabolic condition and or oxidation, you go this direction. And if you go this way, if your thyroid isn't working right, or you have fluoride poisoning or, you know, mitochondrial problems or stuff, you go this way, which makes you sensitive to these viruses. Quite fascinating. And so I included all this nutrition information and metabolic information in this book on BHT. And it's available as a free download for anybody who wants to look at it. When we started the conversation, you mentioned that the one of the catalysts for you getting into biohacking was the death of your grandfather through Alzheimer's. What did you learn on your research and what are you doing personally to give yourself the best possible chance of avoiding Alzheimer's? Well, I mean, certainly there's all the common wisdom about it. You know, use your brain, you know, mm. um, do things you love. Avoid Alzheimer's or people like artists and conductors and musicians and people who love what it is that they do. And even if they weren't paid for it, they'd still do it. So there's certainly that side of things. But, you know, for me, mostly unfulfilled quest up until you know 2002 when all i was doing is collecting observations and facts like jigsaw puzzle pieces and i could look at them but none of them fit together or maybe one of them would fit and therefore it really wouldn't be that interesting to have two pieces that hook together when they kind of seem like they hook together anyway the early 90s i collaborated with john morgenthaler and ward dean which was the second smart drug book and we wrote a chapter on Alzheimer's disease, but it was a everything but the kitchen sink approach. All these different things that had been you know, used and looked at and stuff, but there was no integration to it. 10 years later that a group of scientists who were collaborating between the US and Canada, University of Kentucky and the University of Calgary, gave me the jigsaw puzzle piece that everything started to fit together and all these minor little pieces, assemblages that I have. And that was the observation that every one of the enzyme systems in Alzheimer's disease had a sulfhydryl group at the enzyme site or right next to it was the signature of Alzheimer's disease. That turned out to be a very compelling picture for me because that's what I do with my brain. I build these systems level, you know, relationships of things into, you know, an organized, coherent pattern. And Mm. all of a sudden, everything made sense for Alzheimer's disease. And so I started looking into it. What enzymes are inhibited in Alzheimer's disease? Sulfhydryl, 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 sulfhydryl. And it was the integrating experience. And then ever since then, I've just been putting out information on how to do this and how to take advantage of it. And after 10 years, Dale Bredesen did it a different way. My mm-hmm. May was looking at chemistry. He did it from a top-down perspective, looking at proteomics and genetics and epigenetics and came to, in a sense, the same conclusion about mm-hmm. the actual triggers and mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease, even without recognizing the sulfhydryl. He started treating people and reversing Alzheimer's disease, just like I had done, only I had dealt with maybe a dozen cases in 12 years, and he's doing, you know, hundreds. (laughs) So how do you reverse it? You just restore glutathione recycling, and the brain heals itself. Um, It's a simple lack of mercury control. And glutathione does two things in the body. It's an antioxidant, and it controls mercury. And glutathione's ability to bind mercury depends upon how it's recycled. Glutathione oxidizes, 
And oxidized glutathione does not bind mercury. You recycle glutathione back, now it binds mercury. And now it protects your antioxidant nervous system from oxidants. Mechanism recycling glutathione is an energy-driven system. It works by the same mitochondrial mechanisms that make ATP. Is this the reason why you don't supplement with glutathione? Because you want that glutathione recycling process to be working effectively. All you have to do is give somebody an herb with a chemical that irritates their system and their glutathione will go up. You don't have to give them any glutathione at all. So that doesn't convince me that taking glutathione is a good idea. But recycling glutathione, that's the way the body does it. And that depended upon your energy. And, you know, when you're young, glutathione recycling is incredibly robust. And glutathione synthesis is also robust. What would you do to help recycle glutathione rather than supplement glutathione? The problem with supplementing glutathione is that it's, um, the glutathione system is feedback regulated. In other words, it's like testosterone. You take more testosterone, your body decreases its production. A lot of the hormones are in that kind of way. Thyroid hormone. You take thyroid hormone, your body lowers its production of thyroid hormone. So it's not to say that that's bad. It's just that you're dealing with a, a dose response curve that's dynamic and it's changing. And you have to take that into account. And so that's why a lot of thyroid hormone replacement therapy nowadays is done dysfunctionally is because that's not being done. And they'll just give a certain dose and hold it there when actually the, the feedback loop is ignored and the dose becomes inadequate. From the perspective of recycling and energy systems, the question comes down to, you know, what is your, let's say, constitutional orientation towards fuel? It handles glucose very well and a moderately high complex carbohydrate diet, you can thrive on that. Or are you somebody where insulin resistance is an issue like me? Carbohydrate is in a sense, an attractive nuisance, and that I need to deliberately cultivate fat-burning metabolism to have a robust energy. And so for most of the time, that's what I'm doing. I'm restricting my carbohydrate cellular metabolism beta oxidation, or I'm encouraging ketosis, which is you know, wholesale fat-burning. I've got two questions for you before we, we wrap up, because I want to be respectful of your time, and I know you've given us a lot of time mm-hmm. already. I guess the first question is, is there anything that you want to plug to the audience or tell them? Yeah, anybody who wants to know more about what I'm doing can go on the, online and just type my name into a search engine and you'll get blogs, um, answers to questions on Quora, the Seri.com, C-E-R-I, Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute um, website has old stuff on it. Project Wellbeing has newer stuff on it. I'm not afraid of sharing my opinions and and speculations with people so it's not hard to find find me online the message i think the leave with is this this kind of feeling of optimism that we're we're now transitioning from the age of the computer into the age of the sensor and what this is going to mean is that we're going to be able to use devices to learn what our body is saying to us to learn how to speak body so that we can intervene more effectively. For our audience, do you have three tips or three hacks for them to improve their personal and professional performance? A lot of this has to do with deficiencies in the medical profession in terms of things that I emphasize. Medicine is a culture, like 
the military is a culture and like engineering is a culture. Art may be a culture. Certainly each religion would be a culture. And anybody growing up in that culture is going to tend to precepts and prejudices of that culture. And doctors are no exception from this. So a couple of issues that have to do with this. One is thyroid tests are routinely misdiagnosed by the medical profession. They look at thyroid in the wrong way and there's, you know, thinking that there's nothing wrong with their thyroid system because that's what their doctor said than people who actually don't have a thyroid problem. So that's a very common misdiagnosis. Another one is the issue of iron. A deficiency of iron is the, the norm. And it turns out that as you age, too much iron becomes a risk factor. And there's a subclinical, there's a clinical version of this called hemochromatosis. Donating blood is not just good for other people. It's actually good for you. As long as your hemoglobin remains strong and high, um, donating blood has massive health benefits for the donor. Do it. Donate blood. The other aspect of this is, I think I might have mentioned earlier, has to do with sleep. That you know, sleep doesn't get the kind of respect that performance does. And it tends to be considered necessity that isn't productive. And it turns out it's not. Sleep is incredibly productive and incredibly beneficial, not, in terms, not only in terms of the next day thing, but what goes on during the sleep. And all kinds of things that you can cultivate during sleep, like you know, imagery and, and lucid dreaming, um, are ways to exploit sleep. And these are very valuable techniques that people can learn. Thank you, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I really appreciate your time. I can't wait for these episodes to go live. The audience will love them. I'd like to thank Stephen for giving up the time to record two episodes with us for his amazing insights and incredible hacks. Don't forget to check out the other episode with Stephen Folks. Remember, if you would like to access our content one week before it's released, please leave your details at www.upgradedexecutive.com forward slash subscribe and we will send you a special link so you can access the videos one week before we officially release them you can also follow us on all of our social channels at connect with ue and also our website at www.upgradedexecutive.com